Welcome and thanks for joining us. My name is Samanwar Sesha, Director of the Museum of Colour and your host for this series, My Words Donations. As part of the My Words exhibition at the Museum of Colour, we have invited a number of poets to donate objects to our digital collection. These are items that have a real significance to them and their creative journeys. This series is a chance to hear the stories behind those donations. And coming up, we'll be talking with Shazia Qureshi. I'm Shazia Qureshi. I'm a poet, translator, reader, creative writing tutor. I was born in Pakistan, where I lived until age 10, immigrated to Canada and lived in Spain before settling in London, where I am now. Hi, Shazia. The first thing I want to ask you is how would you describe your work? That's such a good question. In my writing, truth is very important to me. And it may be an emotional, deep truth rather than facts. Although I do do a lot of research, which I really love. Also discovery for me to discover things in the the process of writing poetry. And also then um, metaphor is, I've come to realize, very central, and I'm sure this is probably common for a lot of poets, it's very central to, to how I write. So it's not planned, it's more organic, it's following my nose and my interests. And so at the heart of my most recent book, The Glimmer, is grief for my younger brother, Asad, who died four years ago. And as someone who's felt the loss of the people I love most, I guess, uh, my father when I was 20, dear friends, uh, my cousin, I've thought a lot over the years about what remains of us when we die, because it's much more than memory. I found I was getting interested in taxidermists, weirdly. I noticed there's a growing trend for young female taxidermists in the past kind of decade or more. And so without knowing why, I was just very drawn to them. And there's something about caretaking very much with these young women and a kind of honoring of the animals. And so my latest book is in the voice of a young female taxidermist who reflects on her work, her artistic process. And then also what came into it was over the past, I don't know, more than a decade, I'd been collecting quotes from artists on their artistic process I suppose because I was questioning myself and art making as a (laughs) career. And there were things that people said that really resonated with me and inspired me and sort of gave me a real sense of validation, really encouraged me. So in my book, there are also the voices of these artists come in. I suppose this is a way of saying this last book is just a way of showing that all my interests, my obsessions and concerns and what's going on in my life feeds into my poetry through metaphor and story. Uh, so that's a very <laughs> roundabout way of talking about my work. Oh, but it's a beautiful roundabout. And, <laughs> uh, and I'm actually thinking, because what I want to ask you next is when you knew yourself to be a poet. And given you've had so many different homes, yeah, so Pakistan, Spain, Canada, London. So I suppose it's not just for me in this question, the when, but the where did you know yourself to be a poet? 
Ah, that's really interesting. And what you say about having the different homes, I think that's also really central to my work. And the things that were very difficult for me being young, feeling like I didn't ever quite belong. You know, when we left Pakistan, I was 10 and I went to Canada and I was made aware of the fact that I was not like, you know, that I was different. People would say, where are you from? And then when I went back to Pakistan for a visit, people would say, well, you're not Pakistani. And so just the not belonging, something that was so difficult is actually has come to be such a blessing because I feel a sense of belonging in Pakistan, Canada, definitely in Spain, which feels like my spiritual home and here. And I suppose linked with that is also languages. I've always been very, very interested in I, 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 my degrees in Spanish and French uh, literature. And I find that speaking other languages is a kind of portal into a different way of living and thinking. So I speak Spanish and French and I have some Urdu, but I lost quite a lot of it. I understand a lot more than I speak. I speak some Italian, some German, and I just really love to be able to inhabit a different way of thinking and living through these languages. And I've probably gone off course, but also this brings me to how reading work in translation and reading work from other experiences that are very far removed from my own is very important to me. I, I read a lot of work in translation and when I'm teaching, I always bring translated poems to my classes and I'm also now working on a translation project that I've been working towards for several years, translating a Mexican poet, Susana Chavez Castillo, who is also an activist, and she was murdered for her activism around femicide, you know, the brutal murder and rape of young women in Ciudad Juarez. Uh, and she was murdered for that. So I'm in the process of translating some of her poems. So in terms of when... I knew myself to be a poet. I think the where, I remember very clearly a poem I read when I was studying Spanish at uni. It was Pablo Neruda, and it was called Explico Algunas Cosas. I explain a few things. He's talking about the civil war in Spain and just his kind of outrage and the pain of what people were going through. He's from Chile. But that witnessing and that pain that for him was his pain as well, this wasn't happening in his own country. Uh, and I just found that really resonated with me and I suppose how I feel in the world and that sense of belonging to the world. And it's not only injustice in your home that is what concerns people and, and just the passion as well. And there is a repetition in the poem, he says at the end, come and see the blood in the streets. He talks about why he's not writing about beautiful things and about his land. And then he's saying about what he feels he must write about. It was something so visceral and important. And that kind of truth telling really spoke to me. And for a long time, I didn't write poetry just because I didn't get on with it at school. I, I didn't get on with the sort of dissecting of poems and taking them apart. The academic approach to it has never really, it's not something I'm very interested in. But increasingly, as I was writing, and I started off writing a novel because, well, when I was younger, poetry wasn't really a career 
uh, I didn't know anyone who was a poet. It didn't seem a viable career and I wanted to write. So I started writing a novel because that seemed more serious, but I kept cheating on my novel by, <laughs> by writing poems. And I came to find that writing poetry was for me so exciting. It was the way of saying the most interesting things in the most interesting way. And it became something that I just didn't feel quite right when I wasn't doing it. You know, it was a way I made sense of things. And I suppose I felt that thing of feeling like a poet. I think validation is so important. So it was when I began to be published in poetry journals. And then also my first book, The Courtesan's Reply, was published by Ni Aikwe Parks, who is also, I know he's also part of this exhibition and he published my pamphlet, Flipped Eye published my pamphlet. That was really big for me. And then Neil Astley at Blood Axe also been such a big support. He published my first collection, The Art of Scratching, and uh, and he's publishing my next book, which is out very soon. So yes, I was a very late bloomer. I knew I wanted to write poetry. I think I didn't dedicate myself to it until yeah, I was in my 30s, really. And I took a course with Mimi Khalbati, who's a huge influence for me and a real mentor. And I had a meeting, I set up a meeting, you could have a one to one with a poet at the South Bank, it was organized by the Poetry Library. And I would brought along some poems. And she just looked at me and said, you're a poet. That's the first <gasps> time someone had said that. Oh, <gasps> That's so beautiful. And she too is in the exhibition. Oh, yes. Um, So let's come on to your donations. We asked you to donate two objects to the Museum of Colour. And what is your relationship with museums? Because how does it feel to be included in one and to be asked to donate to a museum? Oh, my gosh. I never thought I would be in a museum because I don't have the profile or something about importance. And museums are so central to my experience of the world, actually. They always have been to understanding who we are and where we've come from, the living beings that we share the planet from, just understanding things beyond our particular lived experience and you know I think there are exhibitions that have changed how I think about things there's an exhibition on making at the V&A that really made me think a lot about artistic process an exhibition on the ice age that one of my objects has come from at the British Museum which really electrified me I was almost trembling standing there looking at these objects made 40,000 years ago Uh, and I remember the museum of in Lahore I saw a statue of the starving Buddha it said so much about history and about India and Pakistan and us being one people which of course we were before the trauma of partition and the other thing that I find with museums increasingly I've been thinking a lot about the ethical considerations you know of displaying artifacts that were appropriated from other countries other cultures so to be part of an exhibition in this museum which is so considered and ethically sound and important so important in terms of giving space to people who might otherwise be overlooked I'm so grateful I'm so grateful to be part of this and it's really big for me that's just beautiful so I'm composing myself before I ask you the next question so tell us about your first donation 
What does it mean to you? And why did you want to share it? It's a book. It's got a very strange title, Glimpses of Sexual Life in Nanda Maurya, India. And I found this translation by Mano Mohan Roche. It was translated in 1975. And I think he was quite old at that time. I came across it completely accidentally at the British Library when I was researching the novel, which I did finish the novel. I didn't want to have an unfinished novel in the drawer. But then at, by the end of it, I just thought, you know, it's not that good. <laughs> and so that was it. But I came across this book and it ended up being a translation of the Katurbani, so from the Sanskrit. So these are four monologue plays that were written between around 350 and 200 BC, set in the courtesan's quarter. It predates the Kama Sutra. And uh, so in the book, a narrator walks around the courtesan's quarter and their monologue plays, so it's just him. And he comments on the women that he sees in great detail, often very lascivious. But there is also this unabashed kind of delight in sexuality. There's a complete lack of shame, which was just such a revelation to me because growing up in Pakistan, as I did, I come from a very liberal Muslim family. There's still very much, and it's not limited to Muslim culture, of course, but the idea of shame around female sexuality, particularly male sexuality as well, but it's predominantly, you know, women are the bearers of shame. And so to find these sensual and erotic experience of women was to me so important, actually. And it took me a long time to find my own copy of the book. It took me like a couple of years. I would keep going back to the British Library to look at the copy they had. And I was really haunted by these women. And I felt that this was written 2,000 years ago and women like these existed 2,000 years ago because art reflects life, even fantasy reflects life. And there was a transgender courtesan in there. And I was very interested in her in the idea of what it means to be female. And, and also just in Pakistan, for example, and in India, you see transgender women are very visible. They're also very marginalized, but they're very visible. And so I was really interested in her. And I, I began to just imagine what these women would say. So that became the courtesan's reply, which was a long sequence, which became my first chapbook with flipped eyes. And I did a lot of research around it, around the time. And, and I melded when the women told their own stories, as I imagined, I imagined the lives they might have had, that they would have fallen in love with each other, with other women, uh, there's an older courtesan who really interested me. And so in my version, I made her the lover of the king, who at the time that this was written was Chandragupta Maurya. He was her first love. They met as children. This is what I decided, you know, because the narrator treats her with disdain, you know, as he does with a transgender courtesan. And, and so I wanted to imagine a fuller life away from his gaze. <laughs> I like that you're raising your fists in the air there. That's how I felt when you said that. It was like, yeah. yes, take her up from this place where he imagined her and put her where she yeah. belonged. So tell us about your second object. Ah, yes. So my second object, I'm holding it now. It's postcard from, I mentioned before, the British Museum's exhibition on Ice Age art. So I think it was about nine years ago. 
So my postcard is of a lion man statuette carved from mammoth ivory, so believed to be 40,000 years old. And in the British Museum, there is a video of an artisan recreating, using the same material and the tools they would have used, how long it would take to make this. And it would have taken 400 hours for artisan or artisans, I'm guessing, because how many years of living in caves and hunting and being hunted and carrying this along with all the most precious possessions you know I just thought how long would that have taken you know so just to see this I felt like there's obviously something so central to the human experience that impulse or even compulsion the importance the need to make something and and this is um he has sort of a torso of a man and the head of a lion it's kind of mixed so obviously this is also a story. This was like a creature of myth and storytelling that was created. So for me, it just shows the importance of story and making at all this, you know, even when the conditions were so unfavorable. And it's so funny when I took out this postcard to bring it to be photographed at the museum, I noticed that someone has scribbled in biro, made a mustache and some genitals. Uh, so I've had this for about nine years. So I know this is my son. He would have, because I would often have it above my desk or something. I never even noticed at some point, he just felt the need to make his mark on it. It's amazing. I'm going to make a confession now. When you brought that in to be photographed, I looked at it and I found it so disturbing. I had to look away really quickly. And I decided that I I mustn't look at it again until I knew exactly what it was. Um, but it's clearly a very impactful, impactful thing. So, um, yeah, it's a wonderful donation. And thank you so much for it. So coming right back to you. And this feels appropriate now to ask you to donate your poem, to tell us which one it is that you're going to donate and then to share it with our listeners. Oh, yes, I'm so pleased to do this. So I've chosen a poem that was commissioned by Saima Islam at um, Bradford Literature Festival. It was, I think, in 2018. And uh, we were, there were three of us who were asked to respond to a Gustav Klimt painting. And I was asked to respond to The Kiss. And at first I thought, oh, everyone's seen The Kiss. You know, how can I respond to this? And then, you know, I decided I wanted to respond to Elements in the painting without definitely not trying to tell the story, that story, because he's already told the story. And at this time, so it was 2018, my brother was terminally ill. Uh, I was flying to Montreal as often as I could to see him. Once I flew there, I got a cold on the second day and had to fly back because uh, he was he was having chemo. So I'd see him and his wife, Charmaine. They'd been married for just over a year before he died. Uh, although they'd been together a few years more. And they were both the love of each other's lives. I would just see their love and they knew that their time together was coming to an end. It was so selfless and so all-encompassing. So I, for me, the lovers in the Klimt painting were them. And I, I, just, I wanted to use the pattern in the painting, which is so beautiful. And it's got these recurring motifs and of these flowers I wanted to reflect that in the form of the poem. So 
there are these repetitions of words and sounds which are a bit in the way that the flowers are you see them kind of repeated in different parts of the painting and the color gold this is very like my process of writing this was a commission and I think it was the first commission I had I counted up the number of times I spent working on this poem and it was between 90 and 100 hours towards the end I was in a sort of feverish state of like I'd go to my shed in the garden which is very small at like four in the morning and like work on it for 10 hours because I was close to the deadline but anyway at the set time I was writing this I went to see an exhibition on Wales at the Natural History Museum I went with my husband and my son and I found myself unexpectedly standing in front of a glass case containing the bones of the northern bottlenose whale that lost her way and swam down the Thames. So that was in 2006 and and she died. And I'd been to the South Bank uh, just to witness and it was awful. It was terrible. And But just to be, I suppose, in the presence, even though this creature was dying. Uh, And so to suddenly find myself confronted with her bones. And of course, it made me think very much about my brother's coming death. I was standing there with my son's hand in mine. He was small then. And I I wanted to tell him something about this, to say something about uh, some sort of consolation. Uh, And I realized, I looked at the date and I realized that when I'd gone to see the whale, I was pregnant with him. And so it was just, it's that those weird chances. And then I was there again. And so then in my poem, there's a woman who's pregnant, who's me, but then there's a woman and a boy. And that's not me anymore. That's my sister-in-law. So my, um, my brother was married before when he was quite young uh, and he has three boys and the youngest son was very close to my sister-in-law, to his second wife. And so I just imagined her trying to comfort him in some way. So there's so many things in the poem. The whale just swam into the poem. I didn't expect to have it there at all. And there's, you know, my brother and his wife. So I suppose that's why I wrote this poem. And also it's, I'm going to be reading from my book, The Glimmer. It's a book rather than a collection because it's a long narrative with other things inside. And then it's at the end are two elegies. And this is the second elegy, the last poem in the book, which I'm going to read from. How it begins... A man and a woman press close as flowers press to the pages of a book. Her pale foot slips from its sandal in the vaulted space of a kiss. And the way his hands hold her face is the way leaves hold a bud before it flowers. Now this. A woman alone in a crowd watches a strong brown river struggle to hold the whale that swam down the city's glittering throat, and the air presses, heavy as grief, against her enormous softness. And if a woman and a boy stand before a glass coffin that holds the bones of a northern bottlenose whale, the softness of his hand will be enormous, as she tells him how a story that began with a kiss despite the enormous hole at its heart, can hold a boy. And a river that began with rainwater or snowmelt can briefly hold a whale 
before letting it go, to spill from its mouth into the ocean, stories of whales and boys and all it has known. Thank you to Shazia Qureshi for being part of our exhibition and donating to the Museum of Colour. To view the donations photographed by Sharon Wallace and the portraits by Derek Kakembo, head to www.museumofcolour.org.uk where you can explore the rest of the My Words exhibition and discover our growing digital collection. My Words Donations is presented by me, Samanwar Sesha, and is produced by Stella Sabin for the Museum of Colour. Further episodes of this series are available across all podcast platforms where you can also listen to our previous project, Respect Duke. The music you have heard in this series is by the fabulous Randolph Matthews. You can listen to more of his work at www.randolphmatthews.com. My Words is supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund, Arts Council England and the Foyle Foundation. Museum of Colour is incubated at People's Palace Projects, based at Queen Mary University, London. Thank you for listening. <laughs>